Do we know what Jesus looked like when he was a man here on this earth? What we know is that he must have looked very much like the other people in his community because he seemed to disappear in a crowd pretty well. <laughs> uh, even when Judas betrayed him, the religious leader said, you show us which one he is because uh, Jesus looked like the people that came from Galilee. And um, so sometimes they wanted to take up stones to stone him and he just slipped through the crowd. He could, When he went down to some of the feasts, he went with everybody else and the Bible says he went secretly. Well, he was in a crowd, but, you know, they didn't have television back then. They didn't have photographs, and people weren't emailing pictures of Jesus. Some people knew him, and they knew what he looked like. What changed the world about Jesus is not what he looked like. It's what he said. Mm-hmm. You read in Isaiah 53, he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus may not have looked like, you know, a movie star. He looked like a normal person. What he said is what transformed the world. We know nothing about what he looked like. What we do know is what he said. Do you think that was just so that we would focus on his words and not be caught up in his looks or his appearance? Yeah, and also because uh, the Lord is pretty clear he doesn't want us making idols or images. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. if there's a lot of very detailed description about his appearance, you'd have statues like Buddha of Jesus everywhere. All right. Why were there three crosses at Calvary? Well, you read that he was crucified. There were two other male factors. There were two other criminals that were two, three were to be executed that day, Barabbas and two thieves that were his accomplices. And Jesus died between them. But that's also very symbolic because on the right and the left of Jesus, you've got the destiny of everybody here. We're all guilty like those thieves. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Both wanted to be saved, but one repented and confessed. The other did not. And so on one side of Jesus, I'd like to assume it's on the right side, but I can't prove that. You can't disprove it. You've got the thief that was saved, and on the other side you have one that was lost. Uh, And he called out to Jesus, and even though it looked like Jesus was hopeless, that he couldn't save anybody, Jesus, through his promise, saved that thief. He said, I'm telling you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's that's awesome to see that picture explained. And that's in Luke chapter 23. Why did the Roman soldier pierce the side of Jesus? When the report came, Joseph of Arimathea went to... um, Joseph was a very wealthy ruler. He went to Pilate, and it says he went boldly before Pilate, and he said, I would like to have the body of Jesus. And Pilate said, the body? Is he dead already? Because a Roman crucifixion could could last days. Mm -hmm. And he was shocked that he had died already. And he told the soldiers, if, you know, if you're sure that he's dead, you can give this man the body. Well, the soldiers wanted to make sure he was not feigning death, and they pierced his side, uh, probably this side, because it, it seemed like it pierced his heart, to ensure that he was dead. And John records that from the wound came out two separate streams of blood and water. So they were just basically guaranteeing that he was dead. Uh, you would certainly flinch if you had your side pierced if you were alive. Well, there's also a prophecy about Jesus being That's pierced. right. Thank you. It says that um, they'll look upon him, Zechariah 12, they will look upon him whom uh, thou hast pierced. And it also tells us about his hands and feet being pierced in Psalm 22. It says they gambled for his clothing. It's amazing that these Psalms we know were written, in the King David's example, a thousand years before the event. These Psalms beautifully portrayed the crucifixion And we know that the Bible's inspired because of that. It all points to Jesus. That's right. 
were the two original covering cherubs, Lucifer and Gabriel. Was Lucifer replaced, maybe by Michael the archangel, who was also Christ? Well, I'm not sure, but it's likely that Lucifer certainly held a very high position by the Lord. Uh, Gabriel may have been the other one. It does not say what the name is of the one who has replaced Lucifer. Uh, it does say in Isaiah 6 that there still are two angels on the right and the left of the Lord. When you get to Revelation, it talks about four creatures around the throne. also mentions that in Ezekiel chapter 1. Um, you'll, in Catholic tradition, there's some extra biblical writings. They add an angel named Raphael. That's nowhere in the Bible. In the Bible, you have Gabriel. Michael is not a regular angel. Michael is called the archangel. And maybe you'll write a question in about that. But that's a whole different category. Why are there more prophets in the Old Testament, but not so many in the New Testament and in today's world? Well, the reason you'll find more prophets in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Old Testament is covering roughly 4,000 years of history. So you've got prophets all the way from the time of Enoch up until Malachi. Uh, the New Testament is about 100 years of history. And so then you've got you know, several prophets in the New Testament. Each of the apostles would be considered a prophet. But you might be wondering, you know, how, how come we don't have any prophets from the Bible times to the present? Well, there's nothing that is added to Scripture from Bible times to the present, but it doesn't mean that the gift or the work of prophecy is gone. If you read in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it tells us that gifts that God gave the church among teachers and administrators, it says, and prophets and pastors. And so the Bible looked down through time and said that God would still have a reason for people to use this gift of prophecy in the church, but that's not because it's to add to Scripture. The Scripture is complete. All right, and for our last question, why are God's words written in prophecies? Why is the Bible full of parables? Isn't there much greater value to people if it were just written plainly? Yeah, why did God write some of the parables? Now, some of the prophecies are very plain. Um, <laughs> one prophet told another prophet, he says, because you lied when you leave, a lion's going to eat you. That's what happened, a lion ate him. No misunderstanding that. <laughs> but then you've got prophecies when you get to the apocalyptic prophets, and that would be mostly Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, Revelation. These prophecies were get, given while all of those characters were in a foreign country that was ruling. Some of their prophecies talked about the fall of Babylon and Persia and Rome. And in order to protect the messages, it was sort of given in code. Because you know, we've all seen governments that burn books in history. If they had known, if the Persians said that the Hebrews are foretelling that their God is going to overthrow our God and they would say, well, we're destroying those books. So part of the reason was to protect the books. Jesus also said, I'll speak in parables that the, um, if you seek, you'll find. Uh, some people will see and hear and not understand. But those who are searching, if you search for me, you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And I trust that's what you're doing here and that's what you're doing, you who are watching. We pray you'll continue to come. And I trust you're going to be blessed in our program tonight. Amen. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. And Kelly and John. John still seems pretty good for an old guy. Bless his heart. Good evening, friends. So thankful for each of you that are here. I want to welcome those who are joining us, watching on 
television. You might be watching on AF Television, Amazing Facts TV, or Three Angels Broadcasting. Uh, we're so thankful to partner with Hope Channel for this series. We've got Better Life Television and a uh, number of networks that are carrying it, as well as Facebook and YouTube. And we're so neat to hear from people around the world. And we're also very thankful for our local audience. I want to encourage you, the lessons are available. And if you do the lessons along with the presentations, you will remember much more. And then you've got basically notes of the presentations you can use to give studies to your friends. And uh, that just helps the, the good news to spread. Amen? Our presentation tonight is dealing with the subject of the glorious kingdom. And we get to talk about heaven tonight. And, of course, that is a, a wonderful subject, something that you find referenced in the Bible over 500 times. So it is a Bible subject. Some of the best material is found in the books of prophecy, namely the book of Revelation and also Daniel, Ezekiel, talks about this kingdom that God has prepared. But we always begin with a historical, some, one of these stories in the Bible that's an allegory for these biblical truths. The zenith in the time of Israel, they reached the, the high point in their history during the reign of Solomon. Uh, there was wars before and there were a lot of wars after, but they had 40 years of peace and incredible prosperity the kingdom of Israel and Jerusalem in particular was one of the wonders of the world during the reign of Solomon. And you find this in your Bible in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse also chapter 10, I should say. Solomon, after David died, he made an offering to the Lord at Gibeah. The Lord appeared to him during the night in a dream. And he said, uh, ask what I shall do for you. And it tells us that uh, God said, or he said to the Lord... Uh, someone needs to help his brother right here. <laughs> he said, uh, let me go back and collect my thoughts here. <laughs> we have somebody who's fallen asleep. Maybe someone can help arouse that gentleman right here because that's going to be distracting. Thank you. <laughs> so he, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And Solomon said, uh, what should I ask for? He said, Lord, you may be king over this great empire, and I'm just a child. I don't know how to go out or to come in. Uh, give me a wise and understanding heart. And the thing the Lord asked for, please the Lord. A thing that Solomon asked for, please the Lord. And um, God said, look, you haven't asked for the death of your enemies, but I'm going to give you peace. You have not asked for money, but I'm going to make you wealthy. You have not asked for long life, but I'm going to give you long life, and I'm going to give you what you asked for. I'm going to give you great wisdom. During the time of Solomon's reign, the kingdom reached a zenith of prosperity. He built the temple, and this was a temple that was just plated with gold. It was one of the wonders of the world. Built a palace for himself. Uh, he got involved in international trade. Very, very uh, intelligent. Well, he was a genius. And Solomon basically brought the kingdom to the point where it said that... Uh, Silver was counted as nothing. They were like stones in Jerusalem. Everything was gold. Jerusalem had turned into a golden kingdom. And during that time, the other nations were flowing unto uh, Israel to find out about their God. And you all remember the story in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10. It specifically mentions the Queen of Sheba, who came from a territory of either the southern Saudi Arabia or Africa. They're not sure exactly where. 
where uh, had incredible wealth. You've heard about the mines of Solomon, the lost mines of Solomon. They wondered if in northern Africa, somewhere where Sheba lived, that uh, they had these gold mines. And Solomon had sent ships and brought back all this many talents of gold from this country. Um, but she came and she brought, you know, 40 camels loaded with gifts and treasures to give a gift to Solomon to ask about his wisdom. Now, this is what the Lord always wanted. He wanted the other nations of the world to come and to learn about God. God said to Israel, I want you to be a nation of kings and priests. And so this represented just the, a time of glory, a time of prosperity, a time of peace. There was no war. And it's like the time on earth when the people of God were the closest to experiencing heaven on earth. But then it says, right after the Queen of Sheba, it says, but Solomon loved many women. And he took wives of the pagans that drew his heart away. I think it's interesting in the Bible, it says the Queen of Sheba, all the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents. You find the number 666 there, right after that number 666 is mentioned, the kingdom goes down. It's interesting. But we're going to talk about heaven. And Solomon's early reign was sort of an allegory of that. But we like to go out on the street and find out what have people got to say? What are their thoughts about heaven? Is it real? Does heaven really exist? On a beautiful day like this, it seems like it does all around us. I suspect there's something beyond this, but uh, it's very hard to tell what it is. I like to think so, but I don't know for sure. I like to think so. My Buddhist philosophy would say no. Um, that uh, we're all part of the universe, and when we, when, when our energies leave our body, we just get reborn. I feel like it is. I feel like it's different interpretations of what heaven and hell could be. I think with a lot of people who think that heaven is like, oh, we're all going to be floating on clouds and stuff like that, maybe, but maybe not. <laughs> but I think heaven biblically is forever being in the presence of the loving creator. Well, it's not like what we humans uh, this is earth, so this is flesh. So heaven is something um, invisible to humans. I say very peaceful, love. I mean, according to the Bible, it's streets of gold and things like that. I believe it'll be a new age. I, don't bl I believe that it'll be rewarded. I believe that every second of every moment of every day from this point on matters in every one of our lives. It's going to be a place where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no no more weeping, no more of all the stuff that we're dealing with. The world that's broken is going to be fixed because God's going to be with us. Amen. You know, it's interesting that um, it seems like in North America, if you can believe the polls, that the number of people who believe in God is going down but you still have about 75% of people in North America believe in heaven, whereas you only have about 23% that believe in hell. Isn't that interesting? And of the people that believe in heaven, 90% believe they're going there. Well, I believe the Bible teaches it is a real place. As I mentioned, it's referenced in the Bible over 500 times. Let's find out what the scriptures say about this subject and how it relates to Bible prophecy. First question. What did Jesus promise his people? You can read in John chapter 14, verse 2. He said, In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. So one thing we learn about heaven, and the word mansion here is dwelling place. 
God's, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you. He wants us to be with him. It's a tangible place in time. A lot of misconceptions about what heaven is. And we're going to find out what the Bible says about that. Um, he says he's prepared a mansion. So, you ever enjoy watching some of those programs about the, the homes of the rich? <laughs> you know, the most expensive home in the world is in Mumbai, India. And here, let me read you a couple of facts. I, I printed these off because I thought I might forget. Uh, one of the wealthiest people in the world owns this house. It's called the Antella, and it uh, was built by a multi-billionaire. He's worth about $45 billion, Mukesh Ambami. And um, it tells us that it's 550 feet high with 4 million square feet uh, of interior space. How'd you like to clean that? But that's not a problem for him. First six stories will be dedicated to parking lots, 186 parking places uh, to pamper all the imported cars, 600 workers in this house. And if the traffic is bad, which it is in Mumbai, uh, he can land on the helicopter pad on the roof. Of course, it's got the pool. It's got the palatial rooms, 20 floors of palatial rooms, and, and um, a silver staircase. And if the guests get hot, which it gets very hot in that part of the country, there's a room that produces artificial snow to cool everyone off. So you go into the blizzard room or whatever they call it there. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, they've got a panoramic view of the Arabian Sea, and this house costs approximately or just under $2 billion a home. You know, the sad thing is you spend all that money on a home, and you're going to still get old and die. Man... The, the mansions that we might build here, they're not going to last. We're just going to leave it to somebody else. Jesus is preparing a place for us that will last forever. Amen? What do we know about the place Jesus is preparing? Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. I think most of us understand why we need a new earth. The Bible tells us this earth is waxing old like a garment. There's some serious problems. But uh, new heaven... What's wrong with the old heaven? You need to understand that when you find the word heaven in the Bible, uh, there's three different ways it describes heaven. The word is used three different ways. Now, some of you have heard of seventh heaven. The person says, I was in seventh heaven. There's no seventh heaven. The apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, says that, uh, referring to himself, he says, I knew a man that was caught up to the third heaven, heard words that you're not even allowed to speak. And um, it's a real place, the dwelling place of God. The first time you find the word heaven, or what the Bible calls the first heaven, is the atmosphere around the earth where the clouds float and the birds fly. Uh, and um, when the Bible says the rain comes down from heaven, it's talking about the envelope of air around the earth. When God separated the waters above the earth from the waters below the earth in Genesis, it's talking about the atmosphere. When uh, Captain Kirk, about a couple weeks ago, went to space, he had to escape the atmosphere around the earth, get out of its gravitational pull. So that first envelope is the first heaven. The second heaven is when you talk about the stars that God made in space, in the cosmos, in the universe. The third heaven is referring to um, the dwelling place of God, paradise. And so this is when Paul says, I was caught up to the third heaven. It's talking about there is an actual place where God dwells. Now, skeptics out there, they say, oh, you Christians, you say up in heaven. What do you mean? It's a round world. How could you say up in heaven? 
Well, technically, there is a deliberate spot in the universe. Some Christian astronomers believe it's somewhere in the constellation Orion because Orion is mentioned twice in the Bible. But uh, I don't know that. Uh, most think it's in the north because you realize north is a fixed point. The Bible says the devil wanted to sit on the sides of the north. And God, when he tells us in Leviticus, when they made their offerings towards the Lord, they did it on the north side, towards the Lord. So some have said, you know, we talk about up in heaven. Obviously, anything off the planet is up for us. But there is a place where the Lord dwells. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. There's a heavenly temple. Study for another night. So God is talking about taking us to a real place. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, you might be also. We know when the Lord comes, says the dead in Christ rise, we are caught up, that's the rapture, to meet the Lord in the air, and he takes us to these mansions that he's prepared. But it doesn't stay there forever. Let's find out what the Bible says. It says he's prepared for them a city. He's prepared a city for them. Now, when I first read this and I thought, God's going to take us to a city. That didn't really uh, float my boat because I've always wanted to run to the country. Uh, I've been in most of the major cities in the world. I was born in Los Angeles, grew up in New York City, lived with my mother for a while in England, lived in Boston, in Miami, been to Singapore and uh, uh, you name it, all over the world, Mumbai and Moscow and Karen and I have traveled all over the world and I just don't like cities. This week we had a day off. Karen and I went up in the country where we were the only people probably in 10 miles. It was really nice to get out there in God's nature. But the reason that cities have a problem in this world is because in this world you get people and people sin and where you got a lot of people you got a lot of sin and there's crime and there's evil and there's selfishness and fighting and murder and all these problems. That's why cities are so bad here. But in heaven, you're not going to have those problems. So when people get together there, it's going to be beautiful, pure, rejoicing, no evil, no problems, no sin, no filth, no dirt. He's prepared a city. The media enjoys talking about heaven. Does heaven exist? And some people, when you say, picture heaven, you know what they see? They see little chubby naked babies with wings sitting on clouds playing harps or shooting Cupid's arrows and you know what I'm talking about you got all these medieval pictures of people and say yeah I'm going to die and I'm going to go be a, a fat naked baby in heaven and and the media almost makes it sound like hell is more interesting and trust me it's not and obviously we're going to Revelation talks about the lake of fire and there's a chapter in there that deals with that we're going to talk about that I hope to inspire you first with a place where we want to think about, which is going to heaven. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Now, wait a second, Pastor Doug. I thought we just read that we're going up when Jesus comes. Here it says the meek will inherit the earth. It's because he's making a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to spend time with the Lord in these mansions he's prepared, and he is going to bring the new Jerusalem down from God. You read this in Revelation 21, out of heaven to the earth. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves. People have been trying to build heaven on earth, make a utopia on earth. thought there was a fascinating experiment back in 1991. Some uh, scientists got together and they said, we're going to build 
a self-contained environment. They called it Biosphere 2. They figured the Earth is Biosphere 1. We're going to make a perfectly self-contained environment where everything you need to live will be in there. The idea was if we can build this on Earth, maybe we can build one on the moon or on Mars or another planet. I told you opening night, thinking people all over the world know the world's not going to last and they're directing their engineering genius to say, how can we exist on another planet? Can we create a self-contained environment that will perpetuate life? So they did this experiment. And in 1991, it was complete, cost about $200 million, had greenhouse, and they got waterfalls, and tried to have their own water purification. Well, the experiment went terribly bad. They were supposed to grow their own food. There were eight scientists that went in, supposed to stay in for a couple of years. They all began to fight, stealing food from each other, had friends smuggling in pizza. All the animals that they originally put in this uh, man-made Noah's Ark died off, except the cockroaches and the crazy ants had proliferated everywhere. So if there's a nuclear war, there will still be cockroaches and ants, you can almost guarantee. And it just basically, the the experiment totally failed. But um, they still have it there, and people take tours, and they look at it, and it's sort of as a a man-made object masquerading as science, man was not able to create utopia on Earth. So, question number three. What more do we know about the holy city that God is preparing? You read, there's a lot of details. Notice this is Revelation 21. It says, the city is laid out as a square. And he measured measured the city with a reed. This is like we had tape measures they would measure with a reed back then. 12,000 furlongs. The measurements are given in... Uh, this English equivalent or biblical numbers, by our standards, that would be the city is about 1,500 miles around, or you can figure 375 miles on each side. It's about the size of the state of Oregon. So if you're wondering, will there be room for me? Yes, there will be room for you. I used to live, as I mentioned, in New York City. Do you know there are more people that live below street level in New York City than in the whole state of Wyoming? At least that used to be true. Now everyone in California is moving to Wyoming, so I don't know if that's still true. But um, New York City, another amazing fact. I landed at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and someone said, you want to hear something? I said, what? He said, the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport is bigger than the island of Manhattan. I thought, no. I looked it up. It's true. It's just the airport in Dallas. Everything's bigger in Texas, Right. New York City, 8 million people. And so if you've got a city that's 375 miles on each side, is there room for you? Some folks have actually thought, no sense trying to go to heaven. You know, I'm just too late in line. There's just so many people. How God, God going to fit me in there? I promise you that will not be the problem. The harvest is great. The laborers are few. The Lord wants people to enter the city. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And so it's almost like it's a cube. Now, the height of it equal to the length and the breadth? When you look at that, and this is something of a puzzle for theologians, does that mean that in the middle of the city it sort of goes up like, shaped like a pyramid where it's 375 miles jutting right out of the atmosphere of the earth? That's hard to imagine. As I go through what the Bible tells us about heaven, and it seems like I'm getting a little carried away, I promise you I cannot get carried away enough. Because Paul tells us, the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. In other words, you can't imagine it. We have some 
things the Bible tells us about heaven, wonderful things, but it's going to be so much better than anything we can understand. John says in chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 2, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So there's a time when it comes down from heaven and sets here, settles on the earth. Revelation 21, verse 10 and verse 12. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem. Now, the word Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it means city of peace. The earthly Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt 27 times. And when you go see Jerusalem today, they still have the ancient wall that is full of pockmarks from bullet holes and arrows and missiles and stones that were thrown against the walls. You get the evidence of war everywhere. And the people in Jerusalem today, you've got the Jewish quarter and you've got the Muslim quarter and you've got the Armenian quarter and you've got the Christian quarter and everybody's got their space and there's incredible racial tension in the city. But the new Jerusalem is going to be very different from that. Everybody is going to be part of one family and we'll all love each other. Descending out from heaven from God, it had a great and a high wall with 12 gates. Number that's going to continue to appear as you look at the new Jerusalem is the number, who knows? 12. You've got 12 gates, 12 foundations. You've got... uh, Tree of Life has 12 kinds of fruit, 12 times a year. It's 12,000 furlongs. Now, why the number 12? 12 is a number that God uses for his church. He had 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, 12 is also mathematically an excellent number for builders. Any of you men or women, if you've done any building, 12 is, there's a reason it's 12 inches in a foot. By the way, It's a fun fact. You know, for years, the measurement of the foot changed every year. It depended on the size of the king's foot. It so happens my foot is exactly one foot. And so when I go measure anything out and someone says, I wonder how far that is. I says, wait, 